0: difficult to keep the line between the past and present
1: you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with
0: us welcome to the next picture show a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a current release i'm Tosh robinson here with scott tobias And Genevieve Kosky. This week, Keith Phipps is out on tour as teen singing sensation Keith Bravo. But we're predicting that that phase of his career will fizzle and he'll be back to the table soon. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at the fine art of the straight-faced cinematic parody through a pair of films that sprung from popular TV shows. Uh, Genevieve, I need to take a break to brush my lustrous hair a thousand times so everyone will pay more attention to me. Can you take over from here? Uh,
2: Tasha, Tasha, Tasha! (laughs) Well... Back in 1969, ABC launched one of the last classic-era family sitcoms, The Brady Bunch, which was the story of a lovely lady... Well, if you've heard the theme song, you know the drill. And if you don't, we'll get into it on the show. The Brady Bunch ran for five years and became an American staple that gave us a handful of tropes we're still seeing in sitcoms and series today. And in 1995, Betty Thomas directed a feature-length parody, The Brady Bunch Movie, which flawlessly emulates the original show's look and feel, mostly without winking at the audience about the comedy. You can see a similar tone in the new film Baywatch, a big screen action comedy version of the TV series Baywatch, which launched in 1989 and kept David Hasselhoff on TV throughout the entirety of the 1990s. Both the Brady Bunch movie and the Baywatch movie are bringing TV to the movies, but they also both capture a similar self-aware tone that mostly avoids the fourth wall, but is very aware of exactly where it's positioned.
0: Yeah, there's a really fine line between playing things straight and pretending to play them straight just enough to make them into a joke. Both of these films straddle that line, and they both play on a sense of cultural nostalgia that works no matter how well or poorly you know the original material. We'll look at some of the broader jokes, and some of the really narrow, specific ones, after this break.
1: It's 1995. The world we know has changed. Put on your Sunday best, kids. We're going to see it. But the Brady's... Really? ...never will. With Mike. If your sister would wear her glasses, she just might improve her eyesight. Carol. Honey, I think you've stirred that enough. I'm not stirring. I'm looking for Katie Harry her underpants. Greg. Uh, this is a car, Jack. Well,
2: of course this is a car. Yeah, but my name's not Jack. It's Greg. Bobby. And Cindy. So why don't you hop back on the Swiss miss package where you belong? Huh? Okay. Peter. Lunch looks pretty rank. What'd you bring? Pork chops and applesauce. Jan. Hi, everybody. The new Jan Brady. <laughs> Marsha. Oh, Dinner's ready. Oh, my nose. I'm sure no one will ever notice. There I'll never be a teen model.
1: And Alice. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Brady Bunch movie.
2: Marsha did it again. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha.
0: These days we spend a lot of time talking about gender representation in the film industry. Given how hard it is for women to break in as directors, producers, and screenwriters, and given how low the comparative percentages are of women at top levels in the film industry, the career of Betty Thomas seems even more surprising. Thomas was a second-city comedian who worked with Bill Murray in his time with the troupe, and she eventually moved to L.A. when the comedy shop opened up a West Coast branch. She worked first as a bit player in various films, and eventually wound up with a long-running role in Hill Street Blues. Then she broke into directing through television on shows like Doogie Howser, M.D., and with an Emmy-winning job on HBO's Dream On. She branched into directing films with the 1992 comedy Only You. So when the script for the Brady Bunch movie landed in her hands, she was in an unusually good position to take it up. She had an extensive background in comedy, she'd been in television on both sides of the camera, and she'd already made her mark in Hollywood. In interviews, she said she liked the satirical, absurdist edge of the script, but she also liked the fact that it hadn't been written as a vehicle for anyone, and it didn't come with any stars attached. As much as possible, she wanted to cast unknowns so they could represent the original characters more readily. The exception in her casting was Shelley Long, a well-established star from Cheers, and Fall Guy Michael McKean, who was a full-fledged movie star at that point. But most of her cast came without the baggage of stardom, and she could focus on finding people who embodied roles that were, to some TV watchers at least, extremely familiar. That's part of the weird alchemy of the Brady Bunch movie. The six kids, with Long and Gary Cole playing their parents, and Henriette Mantel as their live in maid Alice, all give big, bright, fake performances that should be off-putting and even a little embarrassing. But they're all basically doing impressions of the earlier roles, capturing what was always bright, fake, and a little embarrassing about the original Brady's. The genius of the Brady Bunch movie, and its more slapstick follow-up, a very Brady sequel, is that as much as possible, Thomas just preserves the specific look, tone, and feel of the original show, but contrasts it with an equally stylized 1990s setting to show how absurd both forms of narrative falsity feel. She isn't saying that the Brady's look false compared with the real world today. She's showing us how often entertainment creates an artificial idea of how the world around us looks. Bringing one era's idea of normalcy into another era helps show us how entertainment changes over the decades, but it also reminds us that it's all ultimately artificial, and that what we see as normal on TV today may look just as stylized and phony in 20 years. That aside, though, the Brady Bunch movie is funny because it's such a spot-on, accurate parody. It's a nostalgia humor, the kind of joke that lands best if the audience thinks, hey, I recognize that. But even for people who never really watched the Brady Bunch, so much of the show had become culturally ubiquitous by the time of the movie, it was possible to get that nostalgic buzz just more or less out of the air. A- am I wrong about that, guys? I-, I was never a Brady Bunch watcher, but I still found these movies really funny the first time I saw them. Do you feel like you need to have seen the show to get why Thomas's movie is funny?
1: I don't know, because I I had a lot of experience watching the show. I watched a lot of Brady Bunch when I was a kid. And so I I really don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there's so many specific details in the movie that reference the show that, you know, you would miss those if you hadn't been familiar with it.
2: Yeah, but I I never watch Brady Bunch regularly on TV. I think I probably saw some episodes on Nick at Night. But I think just a lot of these references, like Tasha said, were like kind of are in the air, like your Marsha, 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 and like mm-hmm. he, the theme song. Obviously, like the theme song kind of tells you a lot about it. But I also don't know the extent to which I agree that like this movie is dependent on those references. Like I think the the references that are in it work because they are so weird in context. Like there's an extra level of nostalgic appreciation to them. But like the way this movie is set up with the Brady's kind of like in this bubble in the 1990s. It just adds this layer of weird comedy to whatever they do, whether you understand the reference point or not.
0: It also kind of works as drama. I mean, the the gag where Marcia gets hit in the face with a ball mm-hmm. is a reference mm. is a specific reference to something that happened on the TV show. Yeah. But you don't need to know that both for it to play as like the slapstick comedy of somebody fall down, go boom, and for it to play as the drama of she's upset about what it does to her face, she's upset about how it will it'll affect her date, and her sister Jan, who is incredibly jealous of her, is <laughs> delighted <laughs> and has happy dreams about it. Like oh, all of gosh. that plays without you you knowing that it's a specific specific callback to the show
1: for sure though i will say that one of the things i really love about this movie is that as much as it is self-aware and full of these sort of odd jokes and and absurdist moments and this fish out of water stuff it actually does evoke the feeling of watching the show at times i mean you remember those interiors and those outfits and the weirdly cheery Family dynamic that went down. It's uh, you know very clean, You're- but it
2: tweaks it too. Like yeah. the sexual innuendo in this movie is hilarious for how like PG it is, but because it's in the context of this squeaky clean TV series, it's like an extra level of naughtiness yeah. to it. Like the, I, I love the characterization of uh mike and carol's kind of you know low-key dogness <laughs> around each other and then yeah. also like alice is kind of like a cat skills comedian who's oh all, y- y-
1: you know <laughs> <Our jokes laughs> I, just, I love i really we'll get into the characters but i really like how the film takes aspects of these characters that were present on the show and then just blows them mm-hmm. up to some absurd proportions i mean jan is a big example but alice there's just it's such a tale of of desperation and sadness and like you know this this woman who is we were told in the film is working for free basically <laughs> and, and is pining for this sam the butcher who, who is never going to uh do anything for her it's just, it, it, you know and and for her to like make those wisecracks about that and everyone to just laugh and say oh alice it's just oh and almost it's it almost hurts it hurts <laughs> to watch um and it's that's an aspect of the show i mean you kind of wonder you know what, what the deal is with Alice when you watch the Brady Bunch. And that's a, that, and that's thing that the Brady Bunch movie does well too. Is just it points out aspects of the show that you just accepted mm-hmm. at the time, and it's like, hey, wait a minute, they they all share one bathroom, and then they they have a weird astroturf
0: lawn. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it what really... happened to
2: Tiger? They don't have a toilet. <laughs> Oh,
0: that's right. Why would they have a toilet? You're not you're never gonna see it on TV, so they have a bathroom without one. And then
2: there's a great like callback to that later in the movie where you see Michael McKean walking through Sears holding a toilet, which is just like which, so- why is he why
0: is he buying a toilet?
2: I think it's like kind of a little nod to the fact that like you couldn't show toilets on television. So like now we're in this movie where it's in the 90s and here is someone carrying a toilet, but it's not in a bathroom. Like there's just this like extra level of like here is a toilet that making it like super weird. He's <laughs> like literally presenting it to the yeah. camera.
1: Yeah. What I was thinking about now that you mentioned Sears. It seems to me that Sears, as a department store, <laughs> is almost where the two eras come together, right? Oh. Because, I mean, it, you don't think of, of Sears as being a particularly modern, uh, hip place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so where
2: you get your oshkosh Bagash. Right.
1: So, so, so it naturally is a place where the Bradys feel uh, kind of comfortable. And uh, you know, at the same time, it is existing in this world of the '90s, and they so so kind of they kind of merge. It's kind of the perfect department store for both of those worlds to collide.
0: Yeah, I can't help but wonder whether they got sponsorship money from Sears for like the the big bright oh my gosh we're going to sears (laughs) but what this reminded me of more than anything is uh the the like whole town hullabaloo over the wells fargo wagon coming in music man i mean (laughs) it's just like oh my gosh family we're going to sears and like they don't even bother to underline it with like you know sears is where we can get everything
2: including presumably the hideous clothes that we wear like where do those things come from alice sews them
0: I, oh, you think Alice rather than Carol?
2: I mean, Carol's very busy. She has a lot to do at home all day. That, that Alice needs to take care of all the housework <laughs> <laughs> and, and sewing people hideous clothing as part of the housework. Was it, was this
1: a, see, the problem is, I watched a little bit of the sequel, and now I'm thinking which which one has the joke? She says she needs Alice to make the lunches that she yeah, hands, that's a, that's that she, in the first that one that she hands to the kids. Yeah.
0: yeah, I'm in the same boat. The I, I find the sequel funnier. Mm. I mean, the sequel is considerably broader and it goes much further with like just the nonstop references. Um, But it also, it's, it's more satirical. It's, it's more pointedly making fun of, of the original. The first one plays it a little straighter, I think, but they're both streaming uh, free on Hulu if you have a membership. Mm -hmm. So we watched them back to back. And then we watched some of uh, the Brady Christmas special where they're all grown up
2: and they all come back home.
0: Uh, and then we watched some actual Brady Bunch TV, <laughs> oh just God. just for comparison, just to see how they. Tasha all does with each her other. research.
2: This uh, this podcast has been sans research for a few, for a couple of weeks, so she is bringing it this time.
0: <laughs> oh I didn't think of it as research. We were we were literally just. The, it was the equivalent of channel surfing around. You're Hulu. geeking
1: out on, for the, the first person in history to geek out on <laughs> the Brady Bunch.
0: Well, the second after Betty Thomas, because yeah. I again she did her research. Like it's it's really interesting to watch an actual episode like. Like a late series episode when uh, Greg's a teenager mm-hmm. and watch it like back to back with a Brady Bunch because like the layout of the house isn't precise. The layout mm-hmm. of the grounds isn't precise, but like the look and feel is. And what's really incredible is just like the feeling of it. Betty Thomas was really specific about wanting TV style directions. So she's mm-hmm. like, she's working with fixed mm-hmm. cameras. They don't pan to follow characters mm-hmm. very often. The direction completely changes when you get outside the little cloistered environment. But within the cloistered environment, she's like using the TV show's wipes. Mm -hmm. She's using the camera setups. She's using like the medium shot environment of a television sitcom. And that's one of the reasons
2: it feels so familiar Mm -hmm. is it's just like a visual clone of what you're, what you were looking at in the TV show. The lighting too, like within the house, it just has that very like flat sitcom-y look to it. And, And you're right, like a lot of the shots are taken right from what i remember of the tv show like i specifically think of that kitchen table shot you know like the the cameras and the exact angle it is when you remember those shots from the series
0: for me it's the staircase like the the thing where they. why do we
2: walk so close together
0: (laughs) (laughs) where they all come down the staircase in order is like that's straight out of the show
1: oh that's that's good yeah one of the things i really um admire about this film is that the concept of it solves the problem of its very existence (laughs) right because because if you think about it i mean you would never in a million years just do a straight up movie version of the brady bunch that would be Mm -hmm. that'd that'd be terrible so it's like how do you make the brady bunch for the 90s and then it's like oh okay (laughs) you just they stay the same, and everything in the 90s are the 90s, and that's that's the problem that's solved.
0: But then the counterpoint to that is what the film thinks of as the 90s, which uh. is as quaint as the 60s well, 69 to 74, but as quaint as that era looked in the 90s, looking back on it, looking at this film's version of the 90s is kind of hilarious because it's it's all just ah, people won't get off their giant giant handset sized health cell phones mm-hmm. they don't talk to each other anymore they're just standing around with their giant phones with a great big antenna on the top but of but those them. are
2: observations that hold up today the phones got smaller but the the point remains oh you know? i know and it's
0: shot exactly the same it's mm-hmm. just the exasperation because they're all talking on their phones mm-hmm. they're not playing games on their phones they're not texting they're they're conversing with other people but other than that it's sh- and and the fact that the phones are gigantic, it's shot exactly the same way. But then you get into, you know, ah, kids and their grunge styles right, right. and their, their grunge music.
2: Like today's music is raw and has like a different edgy sound. Mm-hmm. And everybody's wearing their saggy plaid shirts, man. There's such a good payoff when Davy Jones shows up at the dance and you get like the grunge version of Girl or whatever the name of that song is. And it's just, like the moment when Davy Jones kind of looks around. And he's like, okay. I guess this works like it kind of like it works for the whole movie like okay 70s plus 90s I guess it works. Why not? Yeah. So uh, the the performances
0: here like it feels like they shouldn't work because Mm. they're they're all so big they like Mm. they remind me of people like gunning for the back seats on Saturday Night Live when they're doing impressions but I mean they're hilarious and part of us that familiarity and part of us just I mean, it's it's part of the environment of this TV show. They they feel familiar again. I mean, do they do they work for
2: you? Do they all work for you? Jan, 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 <laughs> Jan. I just, I, I love all the performances are really good and they're all super heightened with like just the right amount of weirdness. But Jennifer Elise Cox is just on a different level. I think like, that character is probably the best written of the mm-hmm. kids just she's got a whole like schizophrenia <laughs> line, you know and she uh oh, jennifer lee's cock just like sinks her teeth into it and every single line reading is just funny to me to even think about
1: yeah that scene with uh, rupaul right yeah oh my god that's, that's <laughs> when she when uh she... She's getting a psychological evaluation, and she's paranoid schizophrenic. Which is again, you know, that, that's the she key. She's not schizophrenic;
2: she just doesn't like her glasses. <laughs>
1: that's true.
2: Come <laughs> back when you're pregnant.
1: But this like this this like internal monologue is
0: just incredible. And it's me,
2: the new Jan Brady. <laughs> Let's knock over a Seven <laughs> Eleven. I could really just quote Jan this entire podcast. I'll stop, but I could. <laughs> i
0: mean then i would start quoting Marsha just to get back to like i i can't believe we all have to go to skewl. <laughs> i'm assuming that that is that i didn't look that one up but i'm assuming that there's some point in the tv show where she pronounces yeah. it skewl, and mm. so they just decided that that had to be a running gag it's completely uncommented on but it's also really consistent and it's but, just her skuel. i think
1: that i think jan not wearing her glasses and running into things i think that happened on the show as well oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so so that that's from the show too as far as the other castings concerned i think it's really just anchored well by shelly long and gary cole who again just especially gary cole just like just turns it up a little bit you know mm-hmm. and, and and they find a couple of things to focus on and my favorite being the telephone conversation Yeah, he has, <laughs> where he has kind of a, this weird cheery response to everything that's said on the other line and then and
2: then yeah. punctuated by Shelley Long's like facial expressions like <laughs> reacting to everything he says with like hope then dismay yeah. then hope then dismay <laughs> <laughs> and and trying to get a word in edgewise
0: while he's doing his like circular logic Cohen's like yeah. it's just it's a lot, a lot of fun if like you're a tattletale, tattletale you're telling
2: on yourself telling and they, just, a tale and they keep getting longer and more bizarre are
0: this is kind of the beginning of gary cole's career he'd been in uh, he'd had a couple of minor roles and then he was in in the line of fire and apparently <laughs> that was kind of his audition was like they showed uh they showed him in in the line of fire well, to betty he thomas
1: the, he was in uh fatal vision was like he was like all four hours of that which i and many 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 folks at the time watched in large numbers <laughs>
2: tasha and i are both like We're both <laughs> looking it up right now but
1: that was a good showcase early show. i'm I kind of a gary cole actor or if you're like if you say autour, maybe an actor for uh gary cole i did a piece way back in the day on character actors for the av club and he was the reason why i did it oh I, gotcha. I, just, I, thought, I i think gary cole just makes everything better including the brady bunch he certainly at.
0: makes this better but yeah uh, thomas apparently did, thought he was too hard-edged and he wasn't going to be able to bring it like he wasn't going to be able to get the mike brady feel at all and then he did some lines for her and she's like okay probably <laughs> and then apparently they put the wig on him and he's <laughs> she's like all right you have the role <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Shelley Long's performance is kind of like dialed up with the like the big eyed battiness, mm-hmm. and he he kind of takes the other direction, like he's he's very serious about it. Which, off the top of my head, I can't remember who played. Mike in the actual Brady Bunch show. I remember, like, he hated the fact that this was what he was known for. He hated being on the show. Yeah, uh, Robert Reed. Oh, Robert Reed, of course. Oh, right. About his uh, his feelings about the show. But I think that comes through in the performance that he gives as that character. Is that he? That Gary Cole gives? No, no, oh, oh, that okay. Robert Reed gives. And then Gary Cole is kind of picking up on that, like mm. serious patriarch who takes himself very seriously. And he he becomes kind of the fulcrum, which a lot of uh, things in the the film revolve around. Because, again, they're all doing this, like, big, bright, silly thing, complete with music videos. (laughs) And he's, like, standing there stroking his chin and dispensing weird wisdom. All
2: right,
1: troops, off to school.
2: Goodbye. Have a good day. Bye, Mom. Bye, Dad. Bye, Mom. Come on, Marcia. I'm
1: coming. Jan, a real friend likes you for who you are, not what's on your face. If you judge your friends for passing judgment on you, you're not only judging yourself, you're judging your friends for judging you. And that would be using bad judgment.
0: Got your happy price, price line.
1: See, I've always believed that it doesn't matter where your home is because home is where your heart is. And we may lose this house, but we'll always have our family because we're Brady's. And this family is our home. That's why we'll always have our home. As long as we have our family, even if we lose our house, we're still Brady's.
2: Your father's right.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah sure. I feel like there's just a big balancing act. There's a balancing act between the Carol performance and the Mike performance. There's a balancing act between pretending they're all taking it very seriously and, like, obviously playing things up. Like, what else do you see going on as a balance in this movie that makes it work?
1: You know, Marcia and, and Jan have a dynamic going on, and, and uh, Cindy and Michael McKeon have their sort of back and forth uh, as well. I mean, um, I, I don't know. It, it does, the characters do kind of tend to pair off to some degree how they would in the show. I mean that rivalry between Marcia and Jan was a pretty big part of the show.
2: I also think it's interesting how this movie deals with the nineties disconnect because it could be so cynical. It could be making fun of the Brady's. But there's so much in this movie where it's like if you go up against the Bradys, the universe will punish you. You know, like, the universe is on the Bradys' side. Like, Michael McKean's character is definitely the the butt of that more than anything else. Like, he gets electrocuted. He gets <laughs> that, was like,
1: that, that joke was, like, one for, like, the really little kids in the audience, I thought, yeah. the But, electrocution but,
2: joke. but I, I think it, like, it fits with what the movie is doing. Because, like, even, even the end, where they win the contest, where, like, everyone's like, what are they doing? But they win because the judges are the monkeys, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, like, it always works out for the Brady's. Like, the universe is on the Brady side. And I think that keeps it from indulging in the kind of 90s cynicism of, like, losers, you know?
0: I, it's like a softer version of the grimy episode of The Simpsons. Grimes, yeah. Words, it's just that, that feeling that they live a weird, blessed life. And it's, I think you see it most, there's just that moment that it always hits home for me, no matter how many times I see this movie, where Cindy is uh, headed out to give the neighbors the mail, mm-hmm. and when she's in the backyard, everything's bright and technicolor and Brady music is playing. When she goes out the back door, like, suddenly you're hearing, like, grungy, hip hop And the like, camera.
2: You get, like, a camera tilt slightly, <laughs> like, like, you, you uh-huh. know? Like, Dutch angles and stuff all of a sudden. And, and like, the, the color
0: changes and, like, the background noise changes. Like, in their backyard, even though it's LA, there aren't sirens. Yeah. But. <laughs> And then she steps out and it's a completely different world. And so you've got kind of the the tension there of the two eras and that sense that it's just all sitting outside their door. Mm-hmm. You know, AIDS and crack and Bernie gets is just like literally right outside their gate. But as long as the gate's shut, it can't get in. But
1: but at the same time, when they are out in the world, they're also impenetrable. They have a bubble around them. I mean, like, you think about like the car the carjacking jacking, yeah. Scene. Uh, where they're just cheerfully oblivious to everything that <laughs> happens. Yeah, or the scene where um, uh, Marcia and Jan are trying to uh, model or get a modeling job, <laughs> and the guy, the guy, the sleazy photographer is trying to tell. Uh, Marsha, all these things that she needs to do, including getting breast implants, and she slaps him for for saying that. Uh, cut my her, hair. Exactly, <laughs> cut my hair. Yeah, I mean, so, so I think it's a good point in this, in the sense that the universe does sort of favor them. I mean, in that, you know, the film. I think there might be a temptation for having maybe bringing everybody in the audience on board or something, right? Yeah. They, they do something. They win them over. They win them over, right? But yeah. that's not that. It's like this is, this is a mystifying performance for many of them, but you know they they luck out on the judges.
0: Yeah. That the whole plot where they win over the neighborhood and everybody decides to just stay where they are. I always feel like there's a couple of scenes missing in this movie that would make the overplot make any kind of sense because it seems like everybody Everybody in the neighborhood has already sold their houses, but they're still living there waiting for the Brady's. And it's like they've got some kind of contract that something's going to go wrong with. It's like they're part of some profit-sharing scheme that involves the Brady's, mm-hmm. and yet they don't engage with the Brady's at all. Because they're, they're super mad at uh, Michael McKean towards the end. They're going to sue him. They're going to sue him. He's cheated them on all this stuff. And it's like if he just bought their houses – like how is he cheating them like how and how are they planning on getting their houses back and staying?
1: They're I just, just assume it was all contingent on on the Bradys, file.
2: yeah, I, I think it's file like a development, sale. like he's like selling it to a developer for like an office park or something. And, like, everyone needs to be on board because they're just going to bulldoze the neighborhood.
0: But it doesn't seem like everybody knows that they've got all got to be on board because, again, nobody is engaging with the Bradys. Nobody is, like, telling them off
2: or, I don't know, throwing rocks through their yeah. windows. But oh. it's a sitcom conclusion. It's a sitcom ending, you know? Like, it, it works out because it has to work out because we need to reset by the next episode or, in this case, by the next movie, you know? Like, you're, you're right. Like, the whole, like, real estate deal thing makes No sense. But I don't need it to make sense. Oh, sure. You know, it's, it's, I think the fact that it doesn't make sense, especially the way that it gets wrapped up, is part of like the grand joke that the movie is telling.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of internal logic here. Like, this is the same (laughs) movie where uh, an electrician leaves a live wire in the ground next to a, like, I don't know, seven year old girl and tells her to watch it for him while he runs off to his truck. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of stuff here that doesn't. It is not attempting to make any logical sense. Yeah. Well, what do you guys think about the big slapstick of Michael McKean getting smacked around? Like, to me, that just it feels like it doesn't quite fit in this movie.
1: No. We were talking about the electrocution scene. It just it feels like that was done for a, a younger audience that might appreciate some bit of slapstick. It's not really all that well incorporated into uh, the movie.
2: No, it didn't it, it? it doesn't I mean I'm not I'm not like yeah I love it when he got electrocuted, but I'm not <laughs> like I'm not mad at it. Like it it feels like it fits one level of the of the humor on this movie. Like it's not necessarily of a piece with the like very self aware winking aspect of the humor, but like there is a lot of big, broad, stupid humor in, in this film too. And it kinda goes back to what I was saying about the universe punishing you if you go up against the Brady's. Like I think like if you look at Michael McKean's character as like uh like a wily coyote kinda of going after the Brady's and just getting punished again and again and again for it. Like it's fine. Michael McKean gives a good electrocuted face, I guess. I don't know. Like I said, I'm not mad at it. It's not my favorite part of the movie, but, you know.
0: It's just so strange to contemplate that, like, he was, I mean, he was probably the biggest movie star in the movie. Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, he's... not I mean, Shelley Long was a much bigger star than, than he was.
0: A that bigger movie star, though? Well, I mean, I, just, mean, I
1: think just star, period. Well, or, yeah,
0: but, know. I mean, I chose that word carefully. Like, okay. you know, she was, she was a huge star uh, coming out of Cheers. And, you know, and she's obviously, she's got a kind of a bigger, more central role here than he does. But in, in terms of movie stardom, and he's basically here to get slammed into walls and mm-hmm. to make mean mug at people. Mm-hmm. Her character involves a very careful, like, balancing act. And it's it's very nuanced and uh, tuned and specific. And whereas, you know, he could be played by almost anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, he reminds me of Christopher Walken in The Country Bears. <laughs> <laughs> which oh, is that, That's
1: a masterful performance, though. I, I, well, it
0: makes the movie. The It It makes the movie. But again, it's like this big, broad thing that is specific to the actor as opposed to specific Mm. to the story.
2: Yeah, I I will agree with you that it's not necessarily a a role that Michael McKean needed to play, (laughs) you know, or he doesn't make it his own necessarily. So to that extent, I agree.
1: I like Gene Smart. as uh, Yeah. uh, Who's kind of into... The, the the Brady Boys, mm-hmm. uh, that's a nice touch, um, and I think all of them.
2: She likes all of the Brady Boys. She really boys does. <laughs>
1: um, and then you do with that one scene. You know, I was trying to think about: Do I really like any scenes where you're, not, where you're not, where Brady is not present? And I do like the scene where where the neighbors kind of come over and they're and they're just itemizing all the weird stuff <laughs> that the Brady's do. That's a pretty clever thing. But one one thing I kind of wanted to talk about too, because we we're you know we'll get into this a little bit with. Baywatch, but there's just, you know, with this movie, the Brady Bunch movie, and with Wayne's World, it was sort of the introduction of kind of a couch potato self-awareness of just, of of people Mm -hmm. who had grown up watching TV, often bad (laughs) TV. I mean, I I watched so much Brady Bunch, and and Silver Spoons, and, you know, and Facts of Life, Family Ties, I mean, these are not good shows, but I watched them. I watched them every night they came on, and, and the Brady Bunch or something was on during the day and i can't really account for that but there is sort of this thing where you kind of watch shows because they're comforting to you or you find them funny or silly in some way and um for these films to kind of call attention to that and call attention you know and wayne's world is very rigorous about calling attention to the camera itself and playing to the camera it was kind of a breakthrough it's sort of just a way forward in terms of how to do TV on film like there was just another way of doing it and they kind of found it
0: and that said, though, I feel like this film established a really solid formula for how this should work, and then so few films have taken and taken them up on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Twenty One Jump Street yeah. is kind of the the best it gets, but you've got so many other movies. Even before this, you had something like uh, The Adams Family, which was, I mean, it was funny and it was a little self aware, but it wasn't really making fun of the original Adams yeah. Family. It was embracing it and and blowing it up. Wayne's World was just expanding something that had been a short and trying to turn it into a full-size thing. And you have all of these Saturday Night Live movies that kind of do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we make this full length? But I find it hard to think of another movie between Brady Bunch movie and 21 Jump Street that hit this same point of like we're taking the plot sort of seriously, but we're also making fun of the ridiculousness of the original, but we're also keeping a completely straight face.
1: You mean between these two? Yes. Because Charlie's Angels was also something that did that. But Charlie's
0: Angels, I mean, it embraces the comedy, but it also kind of takes both the premise and the action pretty seriously. I mean, all of that stuff with uh, Chris and Glover is pretty spooky and pretty cool
2: There's also like kind of a veneer of wanting to be cool with Charlie's Angels that I don't think you have here like everyone here in this movie is very comfortable looking like a complete fool you know <laughs> and that's not really the case with Charlie's Angels I don't think
1: that's true though though again it's still an example though of a television show that you cannot do straight you have to figure mm-hmm. out some you have to conceptualize something different around it um in order for it to work as a movie and uh, then
0: you have you know kind of more dire examples like miami vice or i mean even the a-team like the a-team wait wait,
1: wait, wait, blah, 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 blah. wait miami vice like the michael mann film
0: yeah that's really it's a great film yeah but it's not a comedy and it's not no. and it's not no, making for, fun I mean, no it's not but it's not a, a satire
1: no no it's not but i i think that that took a different approach which is like let's actually t- do it more seriously and make it kind of hip in a different way sure
0: but that's what i'm talking about is like all of these other films have taken different approaches and Mm -hmm. have not like have not come back to this formula like i feel like there's a perfect formula here and almost nobody is learning the lesson
1: other than i guess 21 jump street learned it pretty well
0: yeah, exactly. No. Well, that's, I mean, that's what I mean. These are kind of the bookends. Yeah. And I feel like Baywatch gets closer than most, but we'll get into that in <laughs> the next podcast.
2: Yeah. But still not that close. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: but I don't know. It just, it seems like, like, the A-Team would have been such a great opportunity to to take this approach. I mean, that was really popular show, mm-hmm. incredibly cheesy, incredibly formulaic. And then the movie version mostly tries to play it straight yeah no
1: it did what took the miami vice approach which is like let's do something hip out of Mm -hmm. this and and it was so crappy you know (laughs) it was not (laughs) it would have been fun to see a comedy version of the a-team but you almost get it in something like tropic thunder or something like that it's not the a-team but just that that shows you how you could do pull something like that off and sort of reveal some of the silliness inherent in that show
0: I feel like I may just be missing out on a bunch of films that might have tried to do this that I never saw, like uh, Dark Shadows or Land of the Lost, mm. Get Smart, like...
1: Oh, right. Well, Get that, Smart that was a Bewitched movie. Of a yeah. Those seem pretty close in tone to the uh, original television show was like...
2: I mean, I also just think you're dealing with just really rife source material here. I think, like, the Brady Bunch's lack of any sort of serialization or stakes or complicated plots like really allowed this movie to just wallow in silliness without having to worry about like telling a story that necessarily like, lives up to what the original TV series is trying to do not saying that like you know chips or something it wasn't like a stupid enough TV series to to make a, a funny movie but the, there's a a very precise specific kind of stupidity to the Brady Bunch TV series that I think engendered this movie
0: and i mean is that a stupidity that you can describe no i mean is it <laughs> is it about the the campiness was it I mean, it wasn't that self-aware a show.
2: Yeah, no, it's not a self-awareness. I think it's a lightness, a frivolousness. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no mm-hmm. weight to it. There, so there's no necessarily potential weight dragging down any comedic statements you want to make about it. There, there's nothing even remotely difficult or complicated about the Brady Bunch. No. It's just, it's like all frosting.
1: Well, consider the period. I mean, the period was perfectly fraught yeah. in, 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 right. in America at the time. Again, this is these I'm drawing on Memories of of my childhood here, but it almost seems like the show was as much this unreal, you know, oasis from reality as it is in the the Brady Bunch movie. You know, in terms of mm-hmm. it being that removed from what's happening in the 90s, I don't think it's. I don't think the Brady Bunch, you know, as it ran originally, really spoke to what was happening in the culture in yeah. any in any way. And I think that might have been the appeal. You know, particularly for a family audiences of just being able to escape into this world where everything is orderly and nice and you have a lot of digestible, silly plots the, you know, you've got the volcano thing, and you've got a <laughs> cursed uh, idol in Hawaii. Now you're getting and... into the
2: sequel again. Oh, okay. Well, that's a
1: reference to this. That, but that <laughs> that actually happened on the show. Yeah. Um, but you know what I'm saying. It's just... Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of f- the more famous r- references are covered in one of the one of the movies or the other. But, mm-hmm. but again, I think it probably had as, as little to do with the, its contemporary era as it did, did to the 90s. Hmm. So, that's interesting. Maybe the fashions were probably <laughs> a little
2: more... <laughs> but you know what like the that era of the 90s was also like there was a huge 70s revival happening in fashion too (laughs) like maybe that was like a couple years after 95 but i don't think so i think this is when like 70s was making a comeback like trend wise so it's it's interesting that that's like not in the movie but maybe there's just a couple years disconnect there marcia gets along okay well, she's a groovy chick.
0: Mm-hmm. It's got it going on in a really happening
2: kind of way. Far out happening way.
0: Speaking of uh, having it going on in a far out happening kind of way, what do you guys make of
2: the musical numbers? I love how the song fades out during their talent show performance <laughs> and they all just bow until the song is has faded out. Like, that's just such a good visual sonic joke.
0: I think it's interesting that they at least are semi trying to lip sync yeah. the stage number, but when they're doing the mall number, they're not. Like it's it's a music video; it's not mm-hmm. pretending to be them out in the world singing. And it's I, I mean, it gives you kind of a different feel. But <laughs> I love the I love the music video of them running through Sears, yeah. yeah, being excited by everything they see. I'm
1: surprised that they didn't take advantage of Peter's voice. I mean, they do a little bit, but like, oh, yeah, but he gets like, a
2: full-on Elvis moment. He does,
1: but like, of course, that, that's not really the, the way it worked on the original TV show. That whole "Time to Change" mm-hmm. video, remember that? Yeah. Like, they were they I've were all clips, set. They yes. were all set to perform, but then Peter's voice was was changing, and so they incorporated that squeaky voice into the song itself. "Time to Change." You got to look it up. It's good stuff. <laughs> play that. Play that Our clip list. on the show. That's, that's gold.
0: <laughs> I guess just the only thing I want to the only other thing I want to bring up is I don't where the script came from and I'm a little baffled by it because, you know, I read interviews with Betty Thomas where she talks about getting hold of the script and and being happy because, you know, it wasn't made for somebody in particular who wanted to be in one of these roles but there's no clarity as to where it originated uh who came up with it in the first place there are four credited writers two of them terry and bonnie turner like were big that 70s show people mm-hmm. like 100 mm-hmm. writers on hundreds of episodes literally and then the other two credited writers are Larissa Elhuany who's got like he wrote my girl and my girl too and that's really pretty much it And uh, Rick Rick Kopp, who has a whole bunch of kids TV under his belt, and that's mostly it. Uh, Things like The Adventures of Captain Zoom in Outer Space. And I I don't know if the Turners wrote it and the other two were brought in to punch it up, or the other two wrote a version of it. I, I found one reference to there being like, many, many drafts of it. But I I don't know anything about the story, and I I can't help but wonder if the uniqueness of this movie is because it was somebody's weird passion project that just kind of got, like, passed along and script-doctored into something a little more conventional in a comedy sense, but still a lot unconventional, both for its era and just for the idea of uh, transforming TV into film.
1: I mean, I think once you get into that many writers in that many drafts and i'm sure there are uncredited people as well it can be so hard to to really understand who deserves credit for what
0: mm-hmm. yeah i just don't want somebody to do the definitive oral history of this movie <laughs> uh the readership for that includes the three people at this table and maybe four of the people listening to this podcast you'
1: surprised <laughs> this movie's got people like the brady bunch movie
0: sequel's right. funnier though all
2: right Tasha really wanted us to do the sequel for this for this episode.
0: Oh yeah, we had. I mean, we had a big we had a big argument. This is something we <laughs> should we we were really asked to do, and we should be doing more of is just the uh, pairings that we considered a mm-hmm. thing. And this one, we went through a lot of different iterations of this. We talked about doing Wayne's World, mm-hmm. you know, which is earlier, but I think has a really different vibe from Baywatch in terms of that self seriousness thing.
1: Yeah, I just I thought like I think that. Wayne's World was just was a a real Rosetta Stone, really, has been of self aware comedy. That was what I was thinking, but then the Brady Bunch movie sounded sounded great to me, and I think it'd be too. You know, 21 Jump Street is almost too recent to get into. Too recent for a pairing. Oh, that's funny.
2: And it's also, like, it's too similar a mode of comedy, I think, to Baywatch. I mean, Mm -hmm. it pulls it off a lot better than Baywatch does. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert for the second half of this episode. But, I mean, the Brady Bunch movie is from a different era of comedy. You know, like, film comedy worked different in the mid-90s than it does in the aughts. You know, so I don't think it would have been as interesting a contrast.
0: No. And we talked about doing Brady Bunch too just cuz I think it's it's funnier and fleeter but Scott made the uh, pretty compelling argument I think that if if you're going to compare something you compare it to the thing that started the trend you don't compare it to one of the followers but I think we also talked about doing like Adam's Family and like other other Charlie's Angels just other TV comedies but this was
2: the one that seemed to fit best I'm really glad we did this one I've seen this movie many many times and I I was actually a little apprehensive to revisit it because it's probably been like at least 10 years since I've seen it and I love loved it when I was younger and I was afraid I wouldn't love it as much. But I do.
0: Speaking of movies you love, one of the other things we talked about doing was Josie and the Pussycats, mm. which you were the one that shot that one down, and I don't remember why.
2: Because I don't know that, like, the Josie and the Pussycats as a TV series is, was, like, a big enough touchstone for it to be a valid comparison point here. Like, when I think of Josie and the Pussycats, I think more of the comics, so.
1: Fun, fun fact, uh, the uh, Josie and the Pussycats, the writer-directors of that film uh, were two of the credit writers on uh, the Brady sequel. Yeah, Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan. They're like four credit screenwriters on Very Brady sequel, uh, including those two. And then they went on to uh, write and direct Can't Hardly Wait and Josie and the Pussycats. I think both good films, especially Josie and the Pussycats. What a great film. It It is is a really great film. film.
0: That would have been fun to talk about. But this was the right choice. I really enjoyed revisiting this film. And I hope other people enjoyed it, whether they were revisiting it or discovering it for the first time. Mm And if you didn't enjoy it, this is your opportunity to send us feedback because you know how we love listener feedback. So speaking of listener feedback, we're going to be right back with some listener feedback on some previous episodes. It's a great segment. That was,
1: that was very uh, Mike Brady-esque.
0: <laughs> well, just remember when you're feeding back on the people that feedback on you, you're feeding the people who give you the feedback and you're feeding them back. <laughs> Unfortunately, out for our last episodes on Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense and Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, but for our listeners, the perpetual concert is apparently still going on. Uh, Genevieve, you want to read us a letter about the concert doc
2: experience and the Demi experience in general? Sure. Adam writes, I was in attendance during Timberlake's performance in Vegas in August 2014, and while I don't have a photographic memory about the show, watching Jonathan Demi's film version brought a lot of it back. The one thing I was made aware of yet again is just how impressive Timberlake is as a showman and how easy he makes it look. It was the best concert I've ever been to because of his ability to connect with a crowd through charisma and charm, which isn't to take away from how hard he clearly worked to make the show special. Demi's contribution to the documentary absolutely can't be understated. As entertaining as Timberlake is, I've never been able to get into concert docs because so many filmmakers don't understand how to capture what makes these artists great. There's clearly such a love and affinity for music of any variety with Demi that comes across so well in both of these movies. It also helps to be wildly talented, which he also is. My big takeaway from watching four Demi movies in two days after learning of his death was just how much empathy there was for virtually every person in his movies. I think Scott brought up the wedding scene and Rachel getting married about how so many characters get their little moment to tell you so much about who they are. I was so pleased to take a dive into Demi's career and very sad it didn't come until after he left us way too soon.
1: Ah, what a great letter. I want to adopt uh, Adam. <laughs> Adam, how old are you? I'll adopt you. Um, <laughs> you guys can watch Demi movies we can watch together. Demi movies. No, yeah, this, I this, feel like part letter. of that
0: adoption is uh, he. Yeah, it, we cut this letter down; and it was much longer. But one of the things that he said was, "They don't only seem like two Demi movies in his life." So this is him starting to get caught up. Scott, I think you want to take him home and show him more Demi.
1: Yeah, there's there's plenty more where that came from. <laughs> he just has that has that touch. I'm glad that I glad he this letter firsthand. You know, somebody who'd actually. Seen seen a Timberlake show and understands how dynamic it is and what Demi himself was able to bring to the table. Um, So uh, Adam had a fuller experience of this show than than the rest of us did.
0: Yeah, I haven't caught up on the Timberlake movie or on uh, the podcast, sadly. I mean, I wasn't here to record it because I was traveling and working and super
2: super busy. But did you guys get into Ricky and the Flash and all? No, but I recommended Ricky and the Flash two episodes ago for your next picture show, which we recorded on the night that Demi died. Mm. So this is now three episodes in a row that Demi's death has like cast a shadow over, which is I'm ready
1: to get. I'm ready. We can do it the next one. It'll be a little <laughs> tough. You'll hear, you'll hear what the one is on, on our next show, but uh, <laughs> I think bringing Demi into that one is going to be a little more complicated. But but if you write us nice feedback, we can keep the Demi train rolling along.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I want to echo that recommendation of Ricky and the Flash. Because, I mean, if you want to talk about the use of a director who understands how to shoot music mm-hmm. and giving everybody an opportunity to show that they're a character and to give them some sympathy, like, that was a, it was a late in life uh, film for him, but I loved that film so much. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was just such a surprise. Yeah. You know, I, like, I'd seen so many of his other movies and I still went into it kind of like from the ads thinking, like, hey, okay what is this going to be
2: and i was just so pleasantly surprised by it
0: i should have learned to trust, to trust him yeah yep.
2: so adam if that wasn't one of the four demi movies you watched in two days make that your next one there's,
1: there's a lot of good ones though yeah. i mean i love ricky the flash but there's melvin and howard to think about and <laughs> something wild and married <laughs> to the mob and a lot of good movies hey
0: you and your new adopted kid are gonna have a good time Scott. so
1: excited adam it's gonna be great <laughs>
0: So in other feedback, uh, Alien Covenant is currently in theater, so it's it's not so surprising that we'd get a letter going back a little ways to Episode 70 and 71, where we talked about the new science fiction movie Life and how it stacks up to Ridley Scott's Alien. Uh, here's a response to a response letter about that show. Scott?
1: All right, we're going in it. Uh, this is Daniel. He writes, I apologize for reaching back a ways, but I had to respond to a previous letter on the Alien episode in praise of a film I somehow cannot stop defending. That letter read in part, quote, I was off thinking about the sex and rape metaphor that culminates in the chestburster scene of the alien's lifespan. It had me wondering how the franchise's themes and discussions might have evolved if a later entry had given us an alien that didn't kill the host upon bursting from their chest. Would we find the entire premise just as horrifying if, after a reasonable recovery period and some reconstructive surgery, the human host could go on to live a relatively normal life? Would the rape analogy take on even greater resonance? Or would it somehow lessen the horror and the stakes of the film if audience members couldn't see the alien strictly as a killing machine whose means of reproduction is simply unacceptable? In point of fact, a later entry did give us an alien that didn't kill the host, namely the little-loved Alien Resurrection, in which a chestburster is essentially delivered by C-section from the body of an Ellen Ripley cloned from DNA recovered from the deathbed to which she plunged in the final scene of Alien 3. And in my opinion, yes, the rape analogy does in fact take on greater resonance in this film, as Ripley is forced to reckon with, in short succession, her own non-consensual resurrection, the seven hideously malformed previous clones of herself, one of which was left alive to suffer horribly, the equally hideous monsters who are effectively her own children by rape, and with whom she shares both genetic material and a terrible but inevitable sympathy, and her own duty to exterminate her misbegotten progeny. Ripley's emotional arc turns to the fact that the alien's means of reproduction is quote-unquote unacceptable, not because it kills its host, but because it happens against the host's will. I think that the combination of revulsion, motherly affection, and a dash of perverse pride that Ripley feels towards the aliens in Resurrection make it one of the most thematically interesting entries in the series, whatever one might say about its flaws. Also, Ripley is part alien. How badass is that? Oh, I have wow.
2: not seen Alien Resurrection. No. So I,
1: oh,
0: you've I, never seen it. No, well, I haven't seen it in a long time. And this this letter honestly has me wanting to revisit it. <laughs> um, I recently, we rewatched Alien for our podcast. I recently we rewatched a bunch of Aliens because I was back on uh, Aliens Minute, uh, which mm. is always a fun time, and. Uh, I mean, I had to revisit Prometheus because I was writing about Alien Covenant and I watched Alien Covenant and it has me wanting to go back and see three and four just kind of to fill in the gaps. And and this letter, like I remember the horrible clones, but kind of digging into the thematic background of that scene and making it uh, like one with all of the horrible things going on throughout this series about – rape and pregnancy and non-consensual everything is kind of the heart of the alien movies but this makes me really want to go back to a movie that i did not like at the time and see what's there
1: ditto i don't remember a whole lot about it i saw it when it came out and didn't didn't really think a whole lot of it and that was the end of that so Mm -hmm. um this definitely gives you a lot to think about
0: I mean, that said, I really like this letter. I, I love the fact that we've got readers responding to readers. Um, but I also, huh. I just think that the level of thought that went into this in terms of drawing out a theme that can, it gets a little muddier and a little more obscure the deeper that you get into the series. Like, it's so sharply defined in Alien, and then it gets a little fuzzy and lost. And this is bringing it back into focus for me in a way I really like.
1: Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of a Boy George single that, <laughs> wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> That's another time. That's another letter.
0: Thank you for writing in, Daniel. Uh, you know, anybody else who wants to write in and encourage uh, Scott to sing that song is certainly welcome to do so. <laughs> As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpittureshow dot net. We may feature your response on a future episode, post it on Facebook for discussion, or have Scott interpret it through song and or dance. <laughs> about wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll look at Baywatch with its slow motion running, its seemingly endless genitalia jokes, and its brotastic brome petition. <laughs> and we'll see how a different satirical remake of a TV show looks on screen. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, put on your Sunday best cuz we're going to Sears. Woo! No, no, cheers, good. Oh, I'm
1: excited.
2: I got some of those